Hello listeners, my name is Arno and I'm the founder of Revelator Studio. Welcome to the Truth is Golden podcast. This show is about creative minds and the secret sauce behind their success. It is for people who are interested to learn about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 8, I interviewed John DeWolf, principal at Form Media and Acoustics Plan and Design, a Halifax-based design firm working in the fields of architecture, design, and planning. John talked about his career as a designer and how it took a 180-degree turn after the dot-com bust when he became conscious of his desire to design for the public good. We also chatted about creativity, breaking the rules, and interpretive design. Listen in to learn more about John and his work. So welcome to the Truth is Golden podcast. Thank you, John, for being on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Looking forward to this. So we're going to jump right into the questions, John, and I'm going to start with asking you what you were like as a kid. Whew, probably a little bit of an introvert, very much interested in, in art to some degree, but um, also interested in architecture. My uncle lived next door and he was a practicing architect and worked out of the house sometimes and at offices at others, so... Sort of, you know, as a young kid, loved exploring, but also was very interested in architecture from a very young age. So, can you tell us what part of the country you grew up in? Yeah, I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, it's the east coast of Canada, just northeast of Maine and um, next to New Brunswick. And would you say growing up in that part of the country had a particular influence on you? Um, I think certainly, probably, there's um, certainly a a humility and perhaps down-to-earth quality that I gathered or picked up from here. Yeah, I, uh, I often wonder about that, how much my place of origin influences me, but yeah, I'm sure it has to some degree. So, staying in the topic of childhood and uh, grow- the environment you grew up in, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of family you had growing up? Yeah, uh, I have a brother and a sister. Grew up with my parents in the south end of the city. We're all about the same age as siblings and have gone on to do different things as well. It's interesting when you look at all the variety of jobs and disciplines we've all pursued later in our lives. but. A pretty close-knit family, often on weekends, always out to the country to visit grandparents and uh, around the city for most of my young adult and youth, mostly uh, playing tennis every weekend and and sports and soccer, refereeing, things like that. I see. So, let's jump on the topic of creativity and um, what I'd like to explore with you is how you discovered creativity as something that either had an influence on you or you were interested in or kind of propelled you forward? How did that come about? Are you able to kind of pinpoint to an event or anything like that? Um, There's probably a couple events. And I guess creativity is an interesting word, I think. Um, Later on in my life as I've had time to, to reflect on my profession, I often question what creativity is and if I even am creative or if other people consider me creative. And I think looking back as a teenager in high school, I took art courses and certainly enjoyed the visual arts and enjoyed the and understood the built environment as well. So certainly I was I was looking at things that are typically labeled as creative products, whether it's sculpture, fine art, ceramics, architecture, etc. But I don't know if I understood the creative process. When I went to school, I went to school at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and started out thinking that I was going to do a year of sciences at another institution, then a year of fine art, and then go on to be an architect. And I didn't do end up doing that. And it was interesting, when I think back, there was a point where I was even asked to leave the design program because I just didn't 
understand it at that point. Now, certainly, I've gone on to have a really great career, very privileged, lucky career. And I think there's aspects of what I do that are considered creative, but it took a long time to understand how to hone the creative process. And I kind of leave the word creative out of it. It's how to to hone your design process or whatever process you want to call it, artistic process. And I think it was a product of not understanding the design process when I was in school that led me to reevaluate the design process or creative process when I became an instructor. And then I think over the last decade, decade and a half, really to hone that process. And I'm reluctant even to call it creative process, but just to hone that process. And I think what I realized that creativity, to use that word, to me is just effort. It's work. It's defining the parameters. It's defining the problem to be solved, defining how you're going to look at the problem and then just throwing hours at it, however many hours you have, whether it's two days, two hours, or two years. But to me, creativity is, is work and effort and, and having a solid process to be able to, to break down a very large abstract problem each and every time into a solution that's really exciting and engaging for others. So I think it was both being a poor student of fine arts and instructing or seeing in other students when I was teaching that struggle with how to get to the end, how do we, how do we break this big prob- project or problem down into small parts, and then later on my f- professional career, really honing that process. So for me, creativity is work and process and process. And it's interesting that you approach that question this way, because if the poet who was a guest on the last show we published said the act of living life is inherently creative, do you agree or do you disagree? I think I would agree with that perhaps, certainly. But to me, I don't know if the act of design always needs to be considered a creative process. And that's very interesting. So, if we go back to the basics, what would be your definition of creativity? An ability to define the boundaries and explore everything within that to have the best understanding of potential solutions and then, and this is where the creative part probably comes into it, is knowing when to break the rules, to push the boundaries, to to explore something different, to do something that hasn't been done before. Let's take, for example, architecture versus interior design, okay? I think I would be lost working with a blank slate, a blank site, but I love working as a uh, a student or a practitioner of interior design, I love that idea of working with defined boundaries, whether it's columns or ceiling heights or whatever it is that you have to work in. To me, the creative process is then finding how to make that special or magical or different. So back to that analogy, it's like it's defining the parameters that you can work within and then figuring out well, how do I make this special, unique, different than the last time, different than what other people are doing, but still a valid solution? So, if I understand you correctly, are you saying that if you were given a blank slate, say a client comes to you with a, a, a brief and there's no real constraints, will you define your own boundaries? And Yeah, I will spend time figuring out what the problem really is that they want to solve. So working with them to to be on the same page about that and then working within that. And then for me, it really is. I mean, so part of it is, is I wouldn't say, I don't want it to be heard as locked in, you know, but just finding the parameters that you're going to explore. And in that exploration, 
then figuring out, well, this is unique. This hasn't been done before. Or this is cliche and is always done the same way, so let's try to do it a little differently this time. I, you know, I certainly could still work with the blank slate, but for me, the best way is to break it down to understanding and everyone being on the same page about something you want to solve and then going off and not solving it the same way that everyone else does or not finding a solution that is, you know, standard, but really kind of looking at that and saying, okay, let's make it different this time. Let's do something slightly different or immensely different. So you've alluded a, a few times already to the definition of the problem and spending time exploring what it is that you're asked to design or build. What is that exploratory process like for you? Yeah, and maybe I'll recount sort of some of the assignments that I gave as an instructor to, to give a, an overview of it. But in the beginning, it's coming up with the concept. And so I would tell my students, you have to give me 100 ideas for this concept. And in this case, it was graphic design. So they do little thumbnail drawings, little miniatures about the size of a thumbnail that described, in essence, where it was going to go. Let's say, for instance, there was a, a car on that page, on that little scribble, showing me a car from the front versus the side versus the top, they would argue is three concepts. And I'd say, no, that's just one concept. Move on to the other one. So exploring as many things as possible at that early phase so that you are confident nothing has been left untouched or no stone has been unturned, trying to find um, be confident that you know you've explored everything. Then choose three or four or five. And so as an instructor, I would tell them they had to come up with 100 and that would get the minimum grade. Then choose three or four or five, uh, five concepts and explore 25 versions of each. So flesh it out. Kick the tires. See where this thing could go. And once you do that, you know, then narrow it down to two or three options. This is where a client comes in. You show them two or three options. They choose one and then explore all the variations. So let's go to that, that thumbnail sketch of a car again, for example. This is a very abstract way mm -hmm. of thinking about it. But let's say they chose the car as their, their theme, their solution for solving this graphic design communication problem. Then mm -hmm. should the car be shown from the front, the back, the side? Should it be a steering wheel? Should it be a wheel? Should it be from the driver's perspective? How does first person, second person, third person play into the thing? Um, what are metaphors? Is it headlights? Is it is it the stripe lines? Blah, blah, blah. Like really explore all the boundaries. And then find something that's unique, a different way of communicating car. And let's explore the different ways to articulate, whether it's photography, graphic design, um, typography, illustration, etc. So for my process, it's about in the beginning, exploring as many possible ideas as possible so that you're confident you know that there's nothing left out there that hasn't been explored. Choose a concept and define that concept. Refine, look at the possible variations within that, and then refine and tweak and finesse and hone. Um, I think that when we come up with a concept, particularly our team, um, I think it's the most important part of the process because it defines everything from the start to the beginning. So when we work as a team, we try to define concepts uh, in three different ways. Each and every project we try to do this. Can you describe your concept using one or two words? Can you describe it using a single sentence? And then can you describe it using an abstract little sketch or drawing? And Arno, you're from, have an architecture background, I believe. So the parti sketch, the parti, right? The parti yeah. pre. Yeah. That's it right there. So using those three things, let's define what the project is about. But a parti drawing, a sentence, and two words are still pretty vague, but they give you enough direction to move forward to the next phase. That's about exploration. You know, it's going back to, those two words, the sentence, the parti diagram, 
and saying, does this work or does it not? Does it fit within that, the direction that we've been, we've defined for ourselves in that concept phase? And that is great because it helps you get rid of the stuff that are, that just don't work or aren't worth ex- exploring. And it gives you the time to really um, push and explore as many options as you can within within the constraints that you've been given the party drawing the two the two words the sentence and then towards the end of the project it's about refinement it's all about finesse should it be this shade of gray or that shade of gray what typeface what serif should i use um what color palette should it be I don't know what thickness of steel should you use? You know, it's all about mm-hmm. finessing the details, but you've done the groundwork in the very beginning that you're not making uninformed decisions towards the end. Your process is such that, that you have spent the beginning of the project weeding out what's good and what's bad and allowing yourself enough time at the end to, um, to have a great product. Okay, you know, so, so you actually just brought me back to architecture school, so thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so that exploratory and then editing process, which seems in your case to be quite prolific, when do you know that you, you're done exploring? I think there's two ways, and <laughs> this brings it back to the business of design. but. It's based on a measure of effort. So for any project at the beginning, you define, do I have, is this a two-day project, two-week project, or two-year project? And you know your process so well that you've allowed or allocated so much time, effort, and duration spread over so many months at the beginning of the phase that you generally know when it's time to call it quits. I think if you have a solid process and the beginning is about exploring as many ideas as possible, then you feel confident that you can find a solution that allow you to, to move on to the next phase. For example, let me take this back to the students again. What really frustrated me watching design students struggle was those that would explore four or five different design solutions, options that were kind of half-baked and then change their mind at the last minute and walk in with something that had the basis of a good idea and you could see the potential, but because it came so late in the game, they present something that's kind of lousy and that's what you have to grade them or judge them on. I want to be able to come up with a a process where you know when you have to stop, you know, Mm -hmm. so that that conceptual phase, it's defining the the party drawing, the the concept, the two words, the sentence, and living to it and, and allowing it to tell you what to do in future phases. It's confidence. It's confidence knowing that that you've explored everything possible given the amount of time that you had. So I think it's time. I think time answers your, your question there. I'm being very pr- pragmatic about that answer. No, it's very interesting. My mentor, James Victoria, is actually, I wouldn't call it an opposite uh, opinion, but it's its different from yours. And not to say that it's there's a, a, a right or wrong. I think everybody has a different process. But I like to uh, compare ideas because it's always interesting to see how people think and operate and his process is to try out a few options uh usually not too many yep. but the first one his is always his preferred option like say 90 percent of the time because in his mind it's the most honest and raw and truthful solution to the problem he's trying to solve so mm-hmm. granted his field is slightly different because he's an illustrator mm-hmm. and uh, and I guess there's a bit more creative leeway when you're just doing pure illustration. But I always found it, this idea fascinating because it goes contrary to what most designers would, would <laughs> claim. 
But I think within that, he also allocates enough time to take that idea and then take it through its paces to the end, perhaps. I'm just throwing that out there that that maybe it isn't so far off. It's just he has a different way of defining what the concept is early on. I mean, the, the, I, for me, it's like, how do I get to a solid concept quickly that will allow me to make smart decisions later in the process? Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to go back a little bit to something you said earlier. Um, early on in your design education, you mentioned your school suggesting that you would leave design school because you didn't understand the design process. What brought you to understanding it? And is there a particular event that caused that? Well, so, yeah, I was kicked out of the design program in my third year. I went back over the summer, begged, pleaded, probably cried, who knows? (laughs) But they let me back in. And in hindsight, I don't know how I got through, but I did. Um, But... Years later, two years, three years, four years later, the the teachings all began to come to the surface. And I wouldn't say there was a particular event, but I would say there was a particular person. And Han Oasis, the instructor at NASCAD at the time, was inspirational for me. And even though I did not understand semiotics and had a hard time with rhetorical devices and schemes and tropes, they sunk in and became the foundation for everything I do. And so while there was no one moment, I recognized that Hanno and his visual rhetoric, his approach to using schemes and tropes to assess and talk about design and to use them as means to explore different design outcomes was or laid the foundation for me as a designer so let's say schemes and tropes you know maybe that alone how do you take a concept and look at it through the lens of metonymy hyperbole synecdoche metaphor right there those four or five schemes and tropes give you so many different options to explore so i think for me it was that rhetorical foundation, rhetorical footing that helped me as a designer later in life push and explore and look for different possibilities in my design. So yeah, it was definitely a defining moment. Very interesting. So after that, can you uh, lay out briefly your career path for us? Yeah, I'll try to keep this short. (laughs) Um, Right out of school, Started a business with two friends. Not a great idea, but it was exciting at the time. We did mostly animation, video, and I was doing uh, a bit of exhibit design branding. And we broke up after a couple years. They went off to have an immensely successful career doing animations and TV shows. And I looked back or understood that it was that reaching broad public audiences that I really loved about what I did. I was doing um, over-the-shoulder graphics and information graphics for CBC News World at the time and some exhibits I understood that a lot of people, they have a broad reach. Um, soon after that, I moved to New York in the mid-'90s, and it was an alumni who said, hey, there's a job down here. And even though we'd been doing dog and pony shows in New York and Boston looking for work, I never thought that I would end up living there. So um, packed up everything, and within two or three weeks, I was living in Manhattan. And I was there from 94 to 2001. And to me, that was when I really sort of began to understand that design for the public good is something really exciting and really meaningful, and that my, my graphic design work did not always have to be about selling products products and services that people don't need, but it could be about helping others and improving people's lives. So that was really exciting. And I left that. I got on the internet business train at the tail end of its first wave 
and was there for the bust of 2001. And at that time, I was commuting between New York and Hungary. I had a, a programming team in Hungary, and I had a head office, and we we're building some software out of New York. Um, I moved back to Nova Scotia, began teaching, and worked for Parks Canada. And again, the teaching was completely fulfilling and opened up, sort of was a catalyst for my understanding of my design process. And then um, after about five years, I moved to Washington, D.C., and worked for a museum. I was the director of design for a museum and an art school. And at that point, started dabbling into interior design, but obviously I was doing a lot of exhibition design, dabbling meaning taking courses. And then in, um, moved to Winnipeg after that and went back to school to become an interior designer and then moved back to Halifax. So I've lived in a few places, Washington, New York, Hungary, Winnipeg, and Halifax. Quite the life, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> I guess hung Hungary, Hungary is the outlier. I can't say I know much about this country, but how was it for you to live there? It was amazing. Such a, a wonderful time. You know, I was commuting back and forth and working really hard on this business. And we knew we got into the internet boom at the tail end. So we were just waiting for the bus to happen at some point, And it did. And then I decided just to take some time off. And so I, I moved to Hungary and lived there for about four or six months and just did nothing. <laughs> it was immensely helpful to have that time of reflection. And it's also interesting being in a foreign country, in particular Hungary, where the language is so difficult. Finnish, Hungarian, and I believe Basque are three languages that are very difficult to pick up. So... I had my own routines, but it was really, for the most part, there alone, and I met a lot of people, but it was really just a great time to to reflect, to sketch, to to work on sketchbooks, to think about next steps for design, etc. Very cool. So you said you're, um, you saw the internet bust coming. What, what were the signs that you picked up on? We just knew. You know, it was, I think... 2000 maybe, 99, 2000, I can't remember, 2000, 2001, I can't remember the exact dates, but you just knew everyone had a gut feeling that this couldn't get any bigger, that the economy had to burst at some point. And it certainly was being a lot driven by internet startups and things like that, but you just knew, you knew this couldn't last forever. I don't know if there are any indications, certainly looking back, uh, stock markets and things like that and just the everyone everyone knew i don't know how to, to explain that or no you you could sense it, how can this keep on going I, i'm a huge believer in intuition and trusting your gut so i'm not going to argue with that one <laughs> so how did all those experiences in your mind lead you to where you are today are there particular skills you picked up that are instrumental to what you do, or is there anything else similar to that that you can speak to? Yeah, even though I was trained as a graphic designer, I, I think I always wanted to be someone who worked in the built environment, and I wanted to be an architect early on, and I'm glad I didn't pursue that. I ended up studying interior design recently, and I think that's a good fit, but I was always a, an, an, a graphic designer who wanted to be something else or work in different areas. So to me, those beginning years were flexing your design muscles outside the graphic design world, trying to look for opportunities where graphic design could be applied to the built environment or understanding that graphic design doesn't have to necessarily be employed in the solution that if someone needs a better brochure because not enough people are calling we'll look at the situation maybe it's that the person who answers the phone needs to be more polite you know it's it's understanding that um that my graphic design approach isn't necessarily the only thing and if I find a solution where I need to employ someone else, I'll do it. Looking, working with 
different subject matter experts or collaborating with other people. I think that came out of New York, too. I think that I moved to New York and was privileged to work on really big interdisciplinary teams. And it just opened my eye to how teams work together, how teams could work really well together. Uh, going back to living in Manhattan, and you've mentioned it twice now, where you had this realization that you wanted to design for the public good and helping others and improving people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm quoting you here. Was there a moment or a person or something that brought you to that realization? David Peters was the one who brought me down to New York and to the firm that I ended up working for. And David Gibson was a mentor to some degree who was the owner of the business. This is 212 Associates in New York. But I would say it was two projects in particular. We developed some retirement savings software for mutual fund giant T. Rowe Price at the time. And it was exciting to know that people would improve or have better retirement savings based on this software package that we were doing. And then the defining moment for me was when they came back to us six months, a year, year and a half later with statistics showing that that um, people were make stag making staggering jumps in their retirement savings because they better understood their savings. So that project was a catalyst. That one was one where I really understood that text and language and visuals and pacing could improve people's lives. The other one was doing some work for Disney, and it was integrated design process, IDP, well before people were even talking about it. Here I was, a graphic designer who was working on the signage program working with urban planners, landscape architects, architects, civil engineers, engineers of all type. And we all had a voice at the table. And for me, that was a catalyst because I really understood the power of a good design process. However, the project was really exciting on one hand, yet I realized that I just didn't want to do design that was about selling goods and services. It was a real catalyst that way. And it's, you know, it was exciting because the project was so great and so excited, yet it was a catalyst for me understanding that, that I don't want to be doing work that's about selling. So I, get a, I asked if I could be taken off the project and put on another one. And I worked on redesigning the census for the year 2000 in the United States. So the Clinton-Gore administration had identified three projects, brought them to Congress. Congress said you could do one. Clinton decided that future presidents would be better served if they had a better understanding of constituents. And we spent four years rewriting all the questions and eventually redesigning the form. And it's all part of the design process content too. But knowing that the public would be better served because more people filled out the form more accurately was just moving, like just unbelievable. So I'd say those three projects in combination clearly helped me define who I am as a designer and who I want to work for and who I don't want to work for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if I, I take everything you've talked about so far, um, I'm starting to see a recurring theme around defining the problem and before coming up with a solution, really spending time understanding what you're dealing with and not being attached to a particular solution too early in the process. So I'd like you to speak uh, to the qualities or the tools that you use to define the problem in the most objective manner. We have researchers on board and writers, and we look at precedents and things like that. The tools that we use, I think um, it's more the teams and the opinions that we employ to explore 
ideas around a subject matter and then coming to a table and sharing those ideas and sending someone go to go off and sort of refine that into a meaningful, cohesive statement or words or, or package or whatever it is. Research. Research is the biggest thing. Having a trying to immerse yourself into the subject matter that you're working with. You know, I think it's really interesting as as a graphic designer, and particularly when he works in interpretation, cultural landscape, cultural heritage landscapes, that, you know, you have to become, you'll never become an expert, but you have to become really well-versed immediately because you are representing people through the work that you do. Um, and I think maybe if I'm going to, can I sidestep this a little bit? And I think for me, it's a complete lack of confidence in myself as, I wouldn't say a person, but you know, like in general, you don't have a lot of confidence. However, I've outlined a process such that at the end of that first phase, I feel immensely confident that I know everything I'm going to know about this problem, this client, this this cultural landscape at this point in time, and it gives me the confidence to move forward. So, yeah, to me, it's reading, it's different opinions, it's research, so that everyone has a very good of an understanding of the issues associated with the subject matter you're dealing with. So, in that process, what is the importance of empathy? Hmm. Yeah, it's huge, right? I think you have to be able to put your yourself in someone else's shoes. You have to be understand their position, their outlook. You have to understand how people look at that culture, that community, that user group, and be an advocate for their needs and their their desires, their needs. Yeah, it plays a huge part of design. So if we go back to the company you're part of right now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about it and what makes it unique in the uh, design marketplace? We are two sister companies, Form Media and Akistics Planning and Design. And Akistics Planning and Design is really a planning and a landscape architecture firm or started out that way and has recently become an architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning and civil engineering firm. And then the sister company, Form Media, is traditionally an interpretive planning and signage company. So historically, we do a lot of wayfinding and signage systems, and that taps in really well to urban planning and to landscape architecture. We do place branding, which also fits in neatly really well with urban planning. And we do interpretive planning and design. So exhibits, trails, small traveling displays, etc. And for me, it's that interpretive work that I think has begun to make us quite special in the sense that almost every project now, we try to look at culture and how that can inform design. And I think interpretive planners are particularly well-suited for assessing and analyzing and researching the cultural heritage landscape. And it completely helps our landscape architecture, architecture, graphic design, place branding teams in understanding how a design is culturally relevant as well. You know, I think it's the fact that we employ all these disciplines and have this cultural heritage focus or perhaps storytelling or meaning behind our work. And every firm has meaning behind their work. Everyone will talk about that, but I think it's I think interpretive planners have a unique perspective that really inform all the other design disciplines. So for listeners who uh, may not know what interpretive planning is, can you briefly describe what you guys do? Yeah, so most exhibits, whether it's an outdoor trail system 
or a museum will have an interpretive plan that guides what stories need to be told, how you're going to tell those stories, and what devices, or in the case of museums, what artifacts you're going to employ to help tell those stories. So um, interpretive planners, again, I think this works with my design process that are about finding the core idea. What is it that we want a visitor to walk away thinking about or remembering when they leave the museum? And what do we need to put in the exhibit? What themes need to be demonstrated or shown that back up that core idea? Frankly, it, you know, the more I talk about this and the more I'm involved in it, to me, it just doesn't seem any different than any other design process. It doesn't seem unique. Why wouldn't you try to understand what the core idea is, what, what you want someone who has experienced your architecture, interior design, your exhibit, walking away thinking about, you know? <laughs> they seem so intermingled at, at the moment for me. So it seems to me that interpretive planning, or at least my interpretation of what you said was that interpretive planning is about enabling the visitors or the users of a space or a design that you've completed to have their own interpretation of the story you're telling, as opposed to just telling them something without really any room for interpretation or including their own thinking into the experience of the place. That's interesting that you say that that way, and I might rephrase it, but interpretive planners are looking at something that happened a long time ago or a very complex theory, for example, or talking about the story of millennia and really complex things to understand and they do the job of interpreting those complex ideas and figuring a way to tell that story so that it's understood. But I think your question touches on something that's really, really interesting in what we do in our approach design to design. And that is that we understand or we believe that people do not need to be told how to view something. And I think this might be where you're getting at a little bit, but that good interpretive design is an outcome of providing enough information that people understand the issues, the topic, the subject matter, but they bring with it their own interpretation. And that will always happen. You know, a story will always be understood in different ways, depending upon who reads it and their background. And the type of design that we've moved towards is less didactic, meaning you're standing in front of this object, here's a photo of that object, and here's text written by a curator to tell you how to understand that object. We're trying to move away from that and create environments, spaces, interpretations that are more evocative in nature so that someone can can understand the story, understand what we're trying to communicate, but can do a little more reading or on their own or reading into something, can, can be influenced by the light and the color of the space to evoke the era as opposed to being told this was the 1950s and blah, 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 these things were happening. So as designers, we really try to take the work of the interpretive planners and come up with a design solution that gives enough hints, important hints and cues, so that someone can understand what took place at a certain era or a certain time, but can also read into it or can bring in their own influences when they're self-interpreting these, these spaces or these experiences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I was very interested in one of the stories you shared with me uh, as a as part of my preparation for this interview, and that was uh, Fort Needham in Halifax. Are you able to explain with that concrete example in mind how that translated into a specific project? Totally. So Fort Needham was a memorial park introduced to commemorate 
or memorialize the Halifax explosion. The Halifax explosion was a devastating explosion that took place in 1917 when two ships collided, burned, and one exploded. And it was the largest non-nuclear explosion of the 20th century. So immense destruction, death, injury, etc. And we could have gone through the public park and had signposts with photos of the destruction or talked about what happened here at one time and really introduced, you know, sort of um, enhanced that, that, that tragic, morbid aspect of the park. But instead, we recognize that this is a public park that needs to commemorate an event, but instead of being overt in our expression or interpretation of it, let's be more evocative. So, for instance, we were cutting a path to make it more accessible to get from our parking lot to the, to the bell tower, and we needed to hold back some walls, some earth. So we put two retaining walls, one on either side of the path. The retaining walls were a great fit for communicating the length of the two ships. So to further elaborate upon that, we have these two retaining walls that are made of, of corten steel with rivets in them that are bent in peculiar shapes or almost torn in certain places that are evocative of the destruction, the force of that, that terrible explosion. And in a small area on each wall, we've inscribed the length of the boat, where it was built, who manufactured it, its weight, its width, etc. So after a number of visits, you might be looking at it and wondering why they put rivets there, or wondering why this steel is driven into the ground in the way that it is. Or you might read that the length of the boat is is 420 feet long and look at the length of the wall and say, oh my God, this might be the same length of the boat. So that was one example of how to communicate some facts in a very evocative way. We built these benches on the Mont Blanc ship wall. Mm-hmm. The Mont Blanc was carrying all the raw goods to make up bombs and each bench is inscribed on the front face with the contents. So chlorbenzol, TNT, etc. Mm-hmm. So you could be walking down and wondering why are they using these chemical names and then put together, oh, these are these are really dangerous chemicals. They are really volatile. And understand, oh, what they're trying to communicate is is the dangerous goods. The bench is really interesting too because they're it's made up of these six or eight vertical slats. And if you look in between the slats, there's only about an inch or an inch and a half between them. There's text engraved to talk about how much the goods cost, where they were bought from, what day they were bought on, etc. So the chlorbenzol probably came from six different manufacturers. Each slat in the bench represents one of those manufacturers, the volume of the goods and the cost of the goods. So every time you go back, there's more and more that you can peel away. And that's, that's just two elements. The ship walls and the benches are just two elements in many things that we, we introduced in this park. So you can go to the public park to just enjoy it. You can go and find these things and be intrigued to dig a little deeper and, and do some research. Mm-hmm. But you won't walk away with this really kind of morbid, sad feeling based on being told all the events of this tragic, tragic event. So it's, it's still a public park. It's a great space to go to and, and enjoy. And if you're intrigued enough, you might start digging a little deeper into some of the facts that we've peppered throughout the park. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that concrete example, even though we'll have to imagine in our heads listening to your description. I think you, <laughs> you did a very good description of how that actually applied to an existing project. There's one other element, may I, if you don't mind talking about it. Absolutely. We created a stairwell. So I was really interested in this idea of, of narratives. And in particular, I wanted to come up with this the notion of telling a narrative in both space, the park, and time. And the community of Richmond that sat at the bottom of the hill 
was obliterated, never to return again in name nor function. Mm-hmm. It was called Richmond. And so we had to introduce a stairs, a set of stairs, 120 stairs to go from one street to the top of the hill. And at the very bottom of the stairs, you can stand and read the word Richmond that has been engraved into the steps. But as you walk up, the type slowly drifts apart and the word Richmond becomes more and more obliterated to the point where you're halfway up the stairwell or towards the top and you don't recognize these engravings as type anymore. They're just shapes. Mm -hmm. And that was evocative of this idea of a community that once existed and now a hundred years later had disappeared from memory. But it was a way to honor and respect that community that was once there, yet um, illustrate through the experience of walking from the base of the stairs to the top of the stairs what happened to this community. It just it just disappeared. Now that makes a, a ton of sense. And I believe this park is downtown Halifax or close to, right? Close to, yeah. It's a very urban park next to an area called the Hydrostone, which is important because it was a, a community rebuilt after the explosion. So is that park uh, open to the public as of today? Certainly. It opened on a week before December 6th, but this sort of its official opening was December 6, 2017, which is 100 years after, after the event. Oh, that's brand new. It's very exciting. It is. So I think this uh, brings us to the conclusion of that interview. We've covered a lot of ground, and I think it was very interesting to hear you talk about all those different ideas. I do have one more question for you. Okay. And it's the following, stones or beetles? <laughs> yes, the classic question, right? Uh, I think I'm going to fall into the camp of neither. I can't believe it. You know, I uh, respect both, and I fully understand the impact they've had. Oh, maybe I do have an answer. I think it's Beatles. <laughs> so if you didn't have an answer and you had a third option, who would that be? Oh, really? Ah, oh, Joe Strummer, The Clash. Joe Strummer. Very interesting. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been a great interview. And um, I hope to continue the conversation. Thank you, Arno. I very much appreciate this and uh, I look forward to future conversations. Hi again, everyone. Arno here. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Remember that you can find us online at rvltr.studio or on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore Until next time, salut!